0: So I trained as a counselling psychologist and goodness me, so I, I started off working in addictions, but soon got a taste for working in the field of trauma. And by chance upon chance, I came across extremely traumatized people and my geekish, nerdish behavior overcame all other barriers. And I trained as far and as wide as I possible in as many trauma therapies as as were available. And I set up private practice, goodness me, maybe 20 years ago, off and on. And and that involves working with families, groups, couples, and individuals, occasionally teach. And yeah, my, my specialism is the most extreme forms of trauma. And curiously, it doesn't traumatize me. It impassions me. And so I hope that nutshell of what I do is, is is enough.
1: Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So from all of the experience that you've had with working with trauma, what would you say is the most helpful intervention or the most helpful in helping a person to come back to themselves?
0: Well, you, you say coming back to themselves and... Uh, I think, I, I don't think that that ever was. I think it was Valerie Roussinesen that said, we are born in fragments and it's our experiences that integrate us. And I kind of agree with that. Uh, having worked with the dissociative identity disorder, personality disorders, all forms of diagnoses. I see people still in bits, still in fragments. and And that in order to knit themselves together, That's a totally new experience for them.
1: Okay.
0: So, So so rather than coming back to themselves, it's coming forward to themselves. They they never got a chance. Because most trauma is, in my experience, it it starts off in childhood. And to answer your question about uh, what approach is best, I think that it's really important to have as many tools in the therapy toolbox as possible. Because if I've got one therapy, then the client has to fit through that tool. So they better look like the, what that tool is used for. Whereas if I've got a, a really comprehensive toolkit, then, then I can bring the, the, the therapies to them and, and make all my tools serve them as best right. as possible. So um, as many tools as possible, but, but yeah. deftly handled. I can't just throw any, any therapy at a the person, but there's gotta be a, a clinical reason why that's gonna be the tool at the time
1: this is a subject that's much bigger than just one conversation but for people who are listening to this what would you say is useful in this field of helping a person knit themselves together
0: so I would say to nutshell that straight back is connection and relationship so breaking that down in order for someone to do therapeutic work effectively Mm -hmm. they need to be available for that work and if someone is triggered relentlessly then their capacity to tolerate and to pay attention and be cognitively and emotionally and physically available for the process they need to have tools things that help them to keep grounded conscious available for the process so that's the first part staying connected to themselves staying connected to the the work in hand if if they get distressed then just, they just they just can't focus they're just not available they are, they are the other room so that's the first thing connecting to themselves connecting to the therapeutic work then it's what i i've cultivated relatively recently is the idea of relationship which is that yes tra- trauma gets processed whether it's attachment trauma shock trauma, developmental trauma, that what happens is that I, 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 I don't stop being me, that my relationship to my trauma changes. So it doesn't go away. I don't forget about it. That what was the, a big, scary monster becomes a hissing cat or a, or, a, or a hissing little kitten. And so I'm not scared by it. It's still not, not what I'd want to have. But it's something that I can really manage. So a traumatic past doesn't call all the shots and dysregulates a person, so that the, their nervous system is ruling all the shots, ruling all of the all all of the decisions and all of the all the things that person tries to engage with. And because if they're continually triggered, yeah. continually distressed, then their perception of what they're trying to connect with, whether it's work, relationships, anything including their spiritual path gets distorted. There was a lovely saying that a therapist said I really valued, which was that traumatized minds make traumatized choices. And I do agree with that, that when the nervous system is distorting how I experience this conversation, I could be frightened of you. And I might not need to be, but however you're speaking, your prosody or your intonation uh, the words you're using might be triggering me and and then you become the enemy or a a threat so it's it's working on the relationship to my distress that alters the distortion so I can hear hear you more clearly and I can connect with myself more clearly and the relationship I have with myself my trauma with you uh, becomes less distorted ideally really clear that I'm fully connected to myself And fully available to relate to you and answer with an open heart, with vulnerability, without fear.
1: Basically, when a person has experienced trauma, in order to be able to start knitting themselves together, they first need to learn grounding techniques and um, abilities to kind of remain embodied without fear. So moving into the body. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yes. And then you just hit upon the thing about the body. And about it becoming enemy territory when, right. someone, when someone is violated in some way, whether it's through war or through being mugged or assaulted through childhood, all of that stuff renders the body a scary place to be. So sometimes um, someone will not want to work with their body because it's an automatic trigger especially to certain places, say if I was assaulted on my left arm. So I might not want to focus on my left arm. And you know, it depends on what the assault is and how triggering that is. And when there's multiple traumas, then the body becomes uh, a place that really is undesirable. And what makes it even more difficult is because that person becomes phobic of their body and they disappear up on, either into their head as a, an intellectual or uh, very creatively as an artist or in fantasy that doing body work in psychotherapy is a bit of a double whammy where they don't have the vocabulary internally as well as linguistically for for what's happening in their body to encounter an emotion of what stress is and critically where that stress is in their body where that emotion is located for example the body has its own language it's unique and it's finite and everyone's body has its own logic and how it expresses an experience so i experience fear on the outer aspect of my arms and someone someone else might uh, experience fear in their chest or in their stomach so we're not all the same and uh, you know quite reasonably i might not want to experience that fear and so I'll, i'll do anything everything i can to avoid that and when, when you as my therapist might want to encourage me to encounter that, it might be just, just something I really don't want to do on a very fundamental level. So you coach me in, in careful ways of how to encounter that in right. a graded fashion so that the body becomes literary. And I encounter this every day. Right. When, I, when I'm working with a new person, it's, it's a process of, process of unfolding, of connecting and forming new relationships with their own body, with their experience of themselves, their own self-definition, because I might be told as a child that I'm a terrible person. And so with that feedback loop over years, I I begin to believe that, Then I look for evidence to support that. I get that evidence because I'm hostile, because I'm frightened. And there, the world confirms that I am indeed a horrible person. So you as my therapist, trying to decode that and get me to step out of that That program inside of me is, it's essential, but it's very tricky.
1: So what would you say is the the trickiest bit? Um, If, for example, somebody has a really strong belief that they are absolutely terrible, how would you work with it?
0: Very CBT, actually. Very um, cognitive therapy in in the way of looking for evidence Mm. and disputing it. I don't experience you as being malicious towards me why is that If you're such a terrible person why are you being kind to me why are you smiling at me why are you saying thank you to me these are not things that terrible people do and so it, it's that sort of thing of, of discrediting the belief of i like to use the, the terms of ruining or spoiling or yeah. disrupting what i call as their, their programming or their, their indoctrination uh, their belief And and in narrative therapies, the whole idea of the story being overwhelmingly powerful, but it only being a story. And when it comes down to it, we are the story of our stories. And they accumulate and then form us. And then they become very difficult to dispute. So it's unpicking and challenging and getting the person to evaluate for themselves. In suicide therapy, uh, contextual conceptual therapy, there's this idea of, of the therapist saying, don't trust me, but don't distrust me. And in, in suicide therapy, the, the idea is that suicide is certain, it has guarantees, it's very solid, it's rigid, and it's very constructed, it's got guarantees. And the, the way in to working with that is to be disruptive, to be ana- 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 anarchists and, and to challenge the certainties and just the same as in working with anxiety exposure and response prevention OCD the whole idea of disrupting the certainties and the reassurances that at least I know I'm a terrible person therefore I can live in a hole and never come out that right. is reassuring to come out and expose oneself and drop one's guard and, and trust that people will be benevolent can be overwhelming can be really scary So bit by bit, the person comes out of their shell, out of their hole, and discovers that they are more than they were taught that they are. And it's very much through the relationship of the therapist and the individual, and then testing it, because the relationship is the petri dish for the real world, and encouraging them to test whether these things are true, and not with the people that they know, testing it with naive Naive witnesses and people outside of their social spheres. Because two strangers coming together are not gonna know what, what their beliefs are, what their backgrounds are, what, how they're defined. Right. And that's why when two individuals meet at an airport and at a station, they start chatting away. All of their stuff, all of their baggage comes out and gets picked over There's an immense trust and a deep connection because it's temporary. And mm. both people know that, 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 that this is finite, that we can leave and we can leave all this behind. So therefore, they can take greater risks.
1: So you can just sp- spill your heart out to the taxi driver, but talking to your spouse might be more difficult.
0: Impossible, impossible. Yeah. So, so that's, the, that's the duty of the therapist, as I understand it, is to be that safe haven where that person can fall apart. Mm. That, they, that they can really show the cracks in themselves and let the light shine through doing two things that really contradict each other so it's a process of stabilization and destabilization (laughs) stabilizing the person so they can tolerate the work and to destabilize their constructs their beliefs about themselves and the world and their future
1: so, so tell me just in a nutshell, what do you mean by stabilization and what do you mean by destabilization?
0: So just um, as before, working on grounding techniques that work with that person. So first, I'll, I'll offer three grounding techniques yeah. to, to practice over the week, because usually people see folks once a week and um, get them to practice those and then build on that. And week by week, give them a real battery of, of tools that ground them and, and, and keep them stable. Emotionally and psychologically stable with increasing effect and then they can fine tune which ones work and which ones don't work so much because it differs from every single person. And and it's what I call um, resource diversity, which is that it's my interest to create tools that exploit all 33 senses. Not, mm. We don't have five. If 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 you have a look on the internet, there's this argument that there are thirty three senses. Wow, that's. And it, and if you can build resources in each of those, like proprioception, like not just smell, taste, touch, but a spatial awareness, a sense of time, a sense of weight, of digestion.
1: Oh wow.
0: Lots and lots of different things, and and to to really be creative with those, yeah. and whichever of those senses are are easy to work with, with each individual. I'll I'll look to enhance um, and be really creative as much as possible with, with the tools that really work with them, that really fit with that person, individual. And the destabilization side is about dismantling the programming, dismantling the constructs that that keep them stuck, keep them terrified and cornered, and then they're dug out.
1: So the, are these constructs just basically limiting beliefs about who I am and my value?
0: That as well as keeping safe. So right. there might be a person who is aggressive. They get angry all the time mm-hmm. and they don't trust others. Mm-hmm. And that's not about them being angry all the time just for the sake of it. It's about protection. And any perpetration, pretty much, in my belief, is about protecting something. So when people do terrible things, they're protecting something. Sometimes it might be utterly dismaying what they're trying to protect. But there's something, something going on that right. they're trying to preserve. I mean, suicide is about survival. Logically, it's death. But in a deeply poetic sense, if I kill myself, that's the best way for me to survive. It makes no logical sense. But poetically, it means that I will, I won't be suffering anymore and I'll be somewhere else, the experience will be different. Really want to experience something different to this intense, terrible life that I'm leading. So uh, any act is about self-preservation and that's the primary thing. That's the brain stem body-based thing, the motivation for survival. It overrides everything else. And it it also includes attachment because attachment is in there with survival. So we're, we're born needing others. And according to the work of Bruce Perry, the psychologist and other researchers, that around 16 to 20 weeks in the womb, the child has, begins to have a sense of others, that, that senses mother, senses other people outside. Wow. And so when we're born, we are born social creatures. And without that, there's this condition psychiatric, which is non-organic failure to thrive, which is that an infant will die if they're not attached to, if they're not attended to, they're not nurtured. And th- the curious thing is that we are aware of other long before before we become self-aware. And if you look at the studies of infants and how they are being fed by their mothers, that there's no difference, that mother is just there. And that when mother draws away because she's tired or hurting and needs rest the infant will be shocked because mother is me i am mother there's 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 no sense of uh, differentiation in that way that everything is about me but i'm not aware of myself it's just that everything is connected to me and children as children grow they they are egocentric that they think that mummy and daddy when they're arguing oh i caused that i did something to make them unhappy and and this is where our, our programming starts right. that we, we become the cause of our own misery in some way because we're so dependent on each other for not only nurture but survival so something that's quite wonderful can be quite tricky as well
1: rather than saying that there's an issue with my attachment figure they'll say there's an issue with me because that's safer
0: absolutely because well the thing is what none of us are born with a manual none right. of us know this attachment stuff and uh, you know, this is relatively new theory. You know, it's only, what, 50, 60 years old, this theory? And it's dominant in the field of psychology and therapy. But the thing is, it crosses so many different other ways of, of, of perceiving, understanding human relationship that one can't help but agree, no matter what one's perspective is, that attachment is absolutely central to how we experience ourselves and others. And it being part of survival because we need to be nurtured we need to be safe and we're best with others you know that becomes tricky when we believe that we are we are bad people or that everyone else is bad
1: well it's a lot going on so this creating belief systems is a process of attempting to control and predict one's life in order to feel safe we take full responsibility as children for everything that's going on around us and don't leave space for the fact that actually like so much of our life is not in our control and we are very vulnerable creatures and we don't have control over how other people respond to us and we don't know how to deal with that. We get to a place where it's un- too unbearable to live with the story anymore. The walls that we build to keep ourselves safe becomes the prison that keeps us stuck. That's something. Yes, it- yes. Yeah.
0: And, and what, what deepens that is the desperate need for control and reassurance and the lack of it which which is where OCD comes in Mm. because that craves reassurance and where addictions come in because we don't have any control at all of ourselves or anything else around us so we think solace refuge
1: so when if it seems like we're saying here that that in order for a person to move into a state of what we would call emotional health or um, integration a lot Mm. of that entails really letting go of control
0: yeah I think I mean because everything I'm saying is just my opinion I've done lots of trainings and things but I'm merely just one perspective but when it comes down to the perception of control there's there's this thing of fluidity Mm. of shared control that can I relinquish can I take it can I give it that is it flexible or does it need to be rigid And that if I have to have control all the time, then that has a massive impact on my relationship to myself and others. And if I'm completely flexible, it's, this is a a construct of family systems, of, of the spectrum of, of, of how a system is, is, is maintained, whether it's rigid, it's structured, it's flexible, or it's chaotic and only the middle two, structured and flexible have any real use have any longevity and so when it comes down to my relationships it's really important to be able to hand over control and trust because that builds relationship so it's not either or and and that means flexibility with trust of myself that I can let my hair down that I can be a bit naughty and that's it's still okay but I can also behave in a very very clear and, and and grounded way and that's also okay so I think when it comes to control, control can give the perception of of rigidity. And I think that's really unhelpful.
1: And I I assume somebody would feel the need to control something when they feel so out of control and so scared of that experience that they have a deep drive to keep it all together.
0: Yeah, flipping from from chaos to rigidity and central to that. I believe, or currently, I believe, is is trust, and alongside trust is curiosity, and because not much can function without trust, and trust is not sufficient because one can be fearful but trusting, but if if you are curious, then it's almost impossible to be fearful as well. If you can try being curious as well as either angry or fearful, yeah, it's just not possible. They, they, they are the Opposite ends of a of a magnet, one propel one repels the other. Right. So when I when I work with someone, I encourage them to become curious about their symptoms or their experiences, curious about their trauma, curious about their relationships, right. curious about the dynamics in inside the themselves and in their relationships, and to play, become quite playful, because if you become playful, then there's some resilience there you know if you've got a bully in the schoolyard and become playful with that bully then there's there's scope for for movement there if you're locked in fear or anger then you're stuck you're rigid there's no flexibility there's no play it's very serious and it's very definite but if it's flexible if it's playful if it's curious you can say are you really a bully Do you want a toffee you know and you just play with them <laughs> Then, then you start to have a relationship with yourself as your own bully, when, with your partner. When they say, I'm not the enemy, am I, am I the enemy? Working with, with couples, there's that whole thing of that filter of knowing that that person loves you and yet being terrified of that person because they are so important. They have so much power over you because they're so pivotal to your very being, so they carry a lot of power, a lot of control potentially. But if you can become curious and playful with yeah. that, and say, "Really, where is this?" Oh, and like uh, Lacan, Jacques Lacan, the psychoanalyst, is saying, "You know, you never can deal power head on. It's always just out of your field of vision." If I say to you, "You've got power over me," that immediately empowers me over you it's tricky stuff but yeah. it's 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 a, it's a it's a difficult process to unpack that and to keep the men momentum going i would look at the wonderful women's movement that's really insisting of male culpability rather than women having to protect themselves that men have to be equally culpable to, uh, for their conduct that women having to bear the responsibility of their own safety but also male poor behavior it's just completely out of whack and 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 so taking that risk of confronting the authorities and saying you know, the, the male predation is just unacceptable. Do something about it. Don't make us safer by telling us to, to, to watch out for ourselves. You know, get men to be more culpable, to be educated and informed about predation, the, the de-objectification of women. But it's it's a challenge because the you know the, the patriarchy is, is very strong.
1: How how would you go about starting to create a relationship between the parts within myself? So this part of me saying, you're a failure.
0: Okay, so I might be... I I could come into it from a number of different angles. Currently, I might say, that sounds really powerful, really strong and really important that you're a failure. That sounds like a really good way to protect yourself. Mm. And the thing is, I don't want to stop you from being able to protect yourself. So how do we keep you safe and protected, but not self-condemning. So so let's look at what that I'm a failure is actually achieving. What does it get you? What? How does it serve you? How does it serve you really well?
1: It, it's quite a strong self-directed anger. It's kind of like, it feels like self-punishing, actually.
0: And, and if you continue to be angry with yourself and punishing, then that's really clear and that's really that's very reassuring because if you've got something which is which is so powerful and so reassuring because it's a consistent stable experience then destabilizing that going into the the self-trust the playful the curious the i might be quite nice actually you know you're gonna you're gonna think hold on a minute something's gonna happen the other boot's going to drop. I'm going to get humiliated or found out. Just like, yeah. just, you know, that whole thing of imposter anxiety that someone will re- see the real me, the real me being terrible. And, and so let's just test that. It's the definition of failure. What, is, what does it mean to fail? What are you failing? And who are you failing?
1: I guess that would need real thinking about, like, what does the failure even mean?
0: Destabilize that, that whole theory. Start to start to start to really smash the egg open.
1: I guess the question would be, what's a definition of bad?
0: What are you bad at? Then we w- then we look at the depth of it,
1: yeah.
0: because it might be very very surface. It might be because mum and dad and brothers and sisters told me that I'm a bad person. So how are you bad? Well, I would I'm just always bad. Yes, but how? And you try is try and get that person to unpack. What what are the facts? When were you bad? How were you bad? How were you bad, too? And what was the impact on them? Well, I I had the last potato. Is that bad? Is it is it bad to eat? You know, did anyone on that table die of starvation straight afterwards? No. So how is that bad? Did everyone have a potato? Yes, they did. So how is that bad? And, as, and you know, sorry, it's a quite a pithy, pithy example, but But it's dismantling the construct and seeing how far it goes. And if you weren't bad, what would happen? Then if people in the family stopped calling me bad, then someone else would have to be the the scapegoat. Right.
1: Somebody else somebody has to be yeah.
0: Somebody has to be the garbage.
1: Why does somebody have to be bad?
0: Because it's extremely convenient. Because when you've got a system like a family, if somebody is bad or is mocked, then no one else has to feel bad or mocked.
1: So they take the responsibility some, for anything that is not in alignment with how we want things to be.
0: Yes. It's very reassuring because if that person's bad, everyone else can relax because they're good. Very reassuring. You know, there's that control, there's that consistency, there's reassurance that I'm a good mother or I'm a good father and it's just that child who is terrible. And that you know, I try, I try, I try, but they're still terrible. And I, that means that I keep, I keep on trying. So therefore, I'm a consistent, loving father and I'm doing the best job I can. Therefore, I'm a good person. So
1: how this, would you undo so a dynamic like
0: that? Well, I, 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 first, I'd get them, that person cognitively on board to understand yeah. the therapy that I'm using so that they can step out of their own way and watch it work. So i give them a theoretical underpinning first off, because yeah. otherwise it's just woo-woo magic. And if I'm doing woo-woo magic, then I've got power over that person, which could be an iatrogenic blunder. I could be repeating a wound that's that's very old and very deep. So I don't want to have control over someone. So I I explain myself, my rationale, and then I'll use the therapy. And I'll say, you'll be be the judge of whether this works or not, whether you like it or not. And so so then they could be the, the person in judgment. They can scrutinize another level of control and safety so every step of the way they have a perception of control and self-loyalty rather than loyalty to me and whether i've got a a functional diseased ego or not they have a bit of independence so i suppose just cherry picking uh, a therapy i might use a therapy called forming and it might be that i say okay call up your dad in your mind's eye look into his eyes Let him look into yours, notice what it feels like. Yes, he's angry at you. Okay, what's that feel like? Okay, show him that's what it feels like and see how he acts. It becomes immediately dynamic, relational, and because it's body-based and feelings-based, the body and the emotions don't lie, they just are. Mm. The mind is infinite and can be all tangled but the body and and emotions are absolutely. So using that depth of connection, that gives a chance for that person to encounter the truth of the dynamic between that parent and child, which is that they became a convenient receptacle for the toxic dynamics of the family. And I've seen this time and time again, where it just gets redressed. And the person who's been the container for all the toxins of the family can be quite activated, they can be quite triggered to say, hold on a minute, but if I challenge and destabilize the the structure of the family, I'll be even more blamed, I'll be even more chastised and possibly shunned. Okay, and I'll say, but this is happening just inside your brain and body, not actually happening, but let your brain and body do the work. Let Let the therapeutic work be the petri dish so that it might be possible to change the, the dynamics of those people in your real life.
1: And so if that was happening internally between a part of myself that I believed was bad and a part of myself I believed was good, I can yes. do the same, the same dynamic. I can have a look at the part Absolutely. of myself that I believe is bad and sh- show the part of myself I believe is good how it feels about being the bad one the whole time.
0: Absolutely, yes. I, I, I define that as internal harmony. And but what would be really important is for both internal parts to be resourced enough. So right. they're, not, they're not trying to climb a mountain in swimwear.
1: Hmm.
0: You know, they're not going into the battle you know, wearing flip-flops. You hmm. know, they're, they're, they're equipped, they're supported, they feel grounded, they've got backup.
1: So the body's really the backup, the body's the grounding, the body's the safety place.
0: Indeed, and, and those aspects of the ego because if if your ego is smashed to smashed a bits and you're utterly vulnerable and you're flooded with a the fear then then actually trying to interact with that fearful part it's too much it's too much you'll just bug out you you, you you'll leave the polyvagal window the window of tolerance that you won't be able to focus you'll be either dissociating or hyper aroused so you're overwhelmed just won't be able to focus that's that's the, that's the the true purpose of, of grounding techniques of that phase of stabilization
1: so when you say the ego what do you what are you referring to?
0: the self-experience the, in reference to others desert island there's just you but in social reference shame facilitates social connection shame is 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 the is the fear of being disconnected to those that those whom we value so it's a social a social vehicle for keeping us uh, connected to others it's pretty handy but it's also debilitating and so I'll do everything I can I'm like you and I are doing that now where we're, we're, we're trying to be dynamic interested um, interesting hopefully <laughs> and and engaging positive all those qualities that I believe are quite quite useful and, and, and positive. And were I to be cruel or dismissive, anyone listening to this might judge me harshly. And, you know, so I, I don't want to do that at all. I want them to think highly of me or to think that, that I'm not a bad person at all, that I'm a reasonable person. So how I, make, I experience myself in reference to you is a social construct and we know each other as therapists. And so how I relate to you is, I suppose, in a, quite an intellectual alpha geek sort of way, I'm, I'm a bit of a bit of an alpha geek when it comes to therapy and psychology, and I, I, I see that in you. So I, I try and affiliate with that part of you, and and so that that part of my ego is ah oh, I've got a, I've got an ally here, and um, that there's some stability and reassurance and consistency there, and and then my body can relax then I can feel connected to myself. Yeah. Then I can feel that I, I, I can be more connected to myself so I can bring more of myself to this conversation. Because yeah. if I'm triggered, if I'm activated, I can be compromised. that I have a direct impact on my cognitive functions because my brain will go offline if I'm at all triggered. The more relaxed, the more grounded, the more reassured, the more connected I feel to you. Then my ego says, yes, I'm a good guy you're a good person, and this is a pleasant, positive conversation. My, my ego is getting that self, that balm.
1: So and um, so when, when I feel safe within my body and my ego feels validated or not attacked, yeah. Um, yeah. my prefrontal cortex comes on, my prefrontal cortex being the part of the brain that allows me to connect, to respond relationally. What else does the prefrontal cortex allow a person to do that goes offline when a person is triggered?
0: So the prefrontal cortex is, is the, well, that's the conscious interface for everything. And without it, when we're, when we're emotionally hijacked yeah. and the thinking mind goes offline, and the more, more triggered we are, the, the more impaired our functionality and our perception becomes. Right. And so our connection to ourselves and others diminishes. So functionality just goes bye-bye.
1: And
0: what happens to to choice? Well, ultimately, there is no choice. That choice requires perception and lots of time. So when I'm in a grounded state and my reactive mind, my emotional mind, my thinking minds are all in a grounded state, then I can think deep and wide. I can contemplate things over years. I can plan. I can have a five-year plan. If I'm terrified, there's a tiger in the room then time diminishes. It doesn't exist. I can't even think seconds ahead. And that my choices are no longer available. It's just fight, flight, freeze, faint. Just those things. And those are visceral responses. I might try to fight, but if the tiger's on top of me, I might just freeze. And so there's, there's no choice at all. So the more brain functionality there is, the more the, the, the ability to choose is, is possible. And when I'm working with an individual and they're, they're feeling triggered about something, I might say, the way you're responding to that father figure or to that neighbour or to that work colleague, does that feel like adult state or child state? And it feels, and they might say, oh, it feels like a child state because a child state, there's, there's no choice. It's just immediate response and and it's emotionally based. Adult state, it's considered, there's choice, you can not respond, you can contemplate, you can sit back. And and, and, and so these these metaphors for ways of of functioning and, and, and experiencing constructs that I use quite regularly in therapy where that person gets to be familiar with their own visceral functionality that all of these ideas start to become oh that's what it actually feels like because just giving them loads of constructs and and, and ideas might be useful to a degree but it's putting it into practice feeling what it's like to be frightened as a child or empowered as an adult and knowing what that emotionally physically feels like to feel strong or to feel trembly and to know that you can, you can be in both of those states, and, the, and, and it's all quite possible. And you can build resources, embodied resources, that can make you feel a lot more grounded, a lot more capable of, of asserting yourself and making your voice heard and protecting yourself and those you love. That sort of incremental use of emotion and of bodywork facilitates all the theories so that it... that. What we're talking about, getting that person to understand at a, at, a, at a felt sense level, how they can feel empowered and deploy that authority where they may may never have experienced that before, just in the relationship with their therapist, and then take it out on the bus or the train or in the family. It's step by step, developing these skills and deploying them in the safest environments possible and then taking it so that if i'm working with someone who has got a huge amount of anxiety in the workplace i won't get them to use these these techniques in the workplace first off it'll be in the in the places where it'll be an easier hit yeah.
1: that
0: if, if it doesn't go for them if they feel a bit of a failure it doesn't matter so much So it's incrementally building up these skills.
1: So what what you're saying is that the more awareness a person has about how they're responding to certain things and how it feels in their body, that kind of self-awareness allows the person to actually have more choices over how they want to respond to things.
0: Absolutely. And if they separate themselves out into not just a singular construct, Mm -hmm. but that they have a body and a brain stem, and that's not them, and their baggage, their wounds are not them, so that they say, okay, trauma, you're not going to win today. I know your purpose. You're just trying to protect me. Okay, brainstem. I know you're just trying to protect me, but you're not going to win today.
1: We have this concept in a in Jewish tradition that each person has an animal soul and a divine soul. And the animal soul is basically the instinctive, responsive, protective, fire, play, and freezers. That's why it's called an animal soul, because it's all about just survival and comfort. And, and then we have the divine soul, which is just this pure, open, expanded light joyful connected part of a person and they're these two souls live in within one body and they're both are vying for like you know who's gonna have control over the organs who's gonna drive the car today am i gonna be um acting from my place of instinctive fight flight and freeze response is my animal gonna hijack my my whole biology and my nervous system and and choose the way i'm gonna act or am i going to have the capacity to really regulate and then act from a place of choice and say actually really the truth is as deep down i am just a channel to express divine light in this world and i'm absolutely whole and part of the universal oneness and that's the truth of who i am so i can take a risk because if i if if whatever happens when i take this risk is not the outcome that i would like it doesn't break me as a person like it doesn't define who i am at all i'm not I'm not absolutely a terrible human being, and that creates resilience in the sense that I'll try again. And
0: yes, wonderful. And going back to the idea of inner connectedness or internal harmony, mm. when this when this higher soul self has compassion for the animal lower self, mm. and then they can work together, and can mm. cooperate. That that internal harmony is 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 a, a deeper goal.
1: Yes, absolutely. Think, uh, the animal soul is really just here to help us. It's like it's like our weights in the world. It's what we push against in order to grow and develop the wholeness of who we are. The animal soul is working for the divine soul, truthfully. That's the deeper truth underneath it. The Vice versa, the divine soul is actually working for the animal soul. They're both working for each other. They're, they're just two sides of one coin. And when we start to create communication and unity between them, like you said, we start seeing how they're actually just one, they're both working for the same cause. They're just both working to reveal divine light in the world and goodness in the world.
0: The metaphor of the oyster and the grain of sand, and the grain of sand being the irritant, which yeah. gets coated by the oyster and it becomes yeah. a pearl.
1: Yeah, kind of like that. And um, we get in touch with the truth of who we are when we see our shadow side, when we mm. confront our fragmented parts and we, we bring them in, we actually start experiencing the divine unity within, within ourselves. Yeah. And we bring that light into the world because whatever inner work we do within ourselves has an impact on the world around us.
0: Do you well, believe that the, 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 the higher soul and the lower soul can cherish each other?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And really
0: value each other?
1: Yeah. We have um, this concept, this Jewish law, where we say that you have to feed your animals before you feed yourself. And if we take that as an internal instruction for your own animal what does it mean to feed your animal really feeding an animal an internal animal is validation in order for us to influence our animals we need to we need to first feed it we need to be kind to it so really validating it and just taking care of its basic needs also is very important if a person doesn't have food and shelter they obviously can't do any kind of spiritual work just Mm. basic taking care of oneself on emotional and physical levels are really important in as a stepping stone for us to be able to kind of connect to the the parts of ourselves that are beyond the material like to be able to look beyond the material I first have to take care of my material
0: (laughs) you've got to know what you're working with in order to do what you want to do you've got to be connected and know the tools you've got in order to do the job that you're you're about to undertake yeah and to take care of your tools too
1: and, and integrating them is the goal. Integrating them is definitely the goal and not to cut them off. There's a lot, a lot of discussion in, in Hasidic thought around the concept of do not cut off your animal soul, do not disassociate from it. It's all about influencing it and working with it and transforming it. And this is the whole reason why we're here, um, is to transform this part of ourselves, not to dis- disconnect from it and to break it in any way but work with it and influencing it and transforming it slowly through like all of these things we discussed through getting to know it, relating to it, making space for it, communicating with it, and then teaching it something new.
0: Well, I'm, I'm, it's, this is wonderful because having really tried to study many, many different religions mm. and seeing the poverty in some paths and the riches in others, it's delightful that, that these are so central. And I'm in full agreement that that every bit of us matters, that I, I spent one time with a, a religious group learning about their, their path. I won't name who they are because I don't want to encourage judgment. But But they said, no, we're trying to get away from the body. We don't want a body. We just want to be spirit. And there was another group that shared the same space. They said, no, no, we want to celebrate body. And this spirit is just, you know, woo-woo. And for, for them, there were, there were two sides, yeah. but there was a huge chunk missing. Yeah. And so the, 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 the wonderful, complete wisdom of the Jewish path is, is such a delight mm. that, it is, that it is a true path. Wow. It's
1: yeah.
0: holistic. It's holistic, Yeah. yeah
1: integrating everything, seeing everything as the oneness of God just expressed in many different ways. How do you express something that is shapeless in a shape or something that's imageless in an image only through infinite images or infinite shapes? Just so much diversity and then seeing how everything that is diverse is really all part of this oneness and it's just an expression of this imagelessness and um, making space for it all is really just being able to see The infinity and the oneness of God in you know every aspect of one's life, and every as and every single person, and how how many billions of people have walked to the face of this earth, but not one of them has been the same as another. Not one Mm -hmm. of them has had the same face, the same fingerprint, and they they just keep coming. Every single version of another human being that's born, there's just infinite infinite diversity, and yet it's all an expression of this oneness, this unified field of energy, which we call the source of all, and everything that exists. And just kind of the more that we notice how everything is a part of this oneness, the more we, we actually bring the awareness, or the revelation of this oneness. by like, by holding all the opposites by holding all the mm. diversity by making space for it all to be and relating to it or seeing it's all of its value. It
0: just reminded me of, of through decades of how I've loved the Jewish path, and i've always come back to this whole thing of wisdom and nurture. That is, it is, those are things that I encounter again and again and again. That I I find the richness of those I can't find them so much in other other paths that I've wanted to study. Yeah. Because for me, it's been a, a, a lifelong quest to, to look at all religious, look at all faith systems, to find, find connection. Because for me, harmony is so important to not be dismissive, to try and understand rather than to just dismiss. Right. Because that's, that's, the, that's the driving thing for me as, as a psychologist and as a therapist is to, is to bring healing and connection yeah. and relationship. Uh, yeah. And um, wow. So, so it's very meaningful to me.
1: Yeah.
0: Very meaningful to me. The three practical ideas that I have would yeah. be to move intentionally into vulnerability, curiosity, and the non binary, which is that. Moving away from I'm good or I'm bad or I'm good or I'm not good enough mm. into I am doing my best. I, I, I can't not do my best. This is what I do. And sometimes my best will be really up there and sometimes really down there, but I'm still doing my best. So yeah. that place of harmonic acceptance, yeah. of, of really being truly accepting of oneself with curiosity and vulnerability, making yourself completely available to others means yes you are at risk but if you are wise as well Mm -hmm. that there are lambs and there are wolves and they all are part of Hashan's creation and that sometimes our number is up
1: (laughs) and the question is just how do I respond to the wolf and how do I respond to the lamb that's my choice my choice isn't to control or take away or change or cut off or disconnect from but it's how do I choose to show up in the face of a wolf and how do I choose to show up in the face of a man.
0: The last person who pulled a knife on me in the street. <laughs> I responded with curiosity. Oh wow! I said, "What is this? What's happening here? Who do you <laughs> think I am?" They were very angry and they were also extremely nervous, very yeah. agitated. And I said, "You know what's going on for you? you? Know what? What do you think I am?" And they accused me of something. And I said, "I cannot. Yeah." Yeah, I can see that you would of course think that that's me, but it's not. And I've got no way of proving that I am or I, I'm not, but so you're gonna have to just tr- trust me on that. And But but are you okay? I mean, you don't look okay at all. You look really upset and this is really important to you. And And it became a conversation and they put their knife away and walked off. <laughs>
1: wow, that is impressive.
0: That is amazing. That is and, really amazing. Well, I, it, it's, it's just, just an example of trying to use those things of vulnerability and curiosity, and you know, accepting that you know, I, I, I am capable of being anything. And I, I'm, I might be the bad person in this person's eyes, but that's not my intention. My intention is to be doing my best.
1: The body is just someone, like you said, someone who's really scared, really fragmented, and and recognizing that actually I'm a part of something just so much greater than myself. And when I have that awareness, and the best, most powerful, and effective way of having that awareness is within the body, because the body is really the the container to hold the to hold our souls, or to hold the one of who we are. So when I feel comfortable in my own skin, and I feel comfortable in my body, I have the grounding and the capacity to then face and destabilize those messages that until now have become my rigid safety like if I believe I'm bad then that became my safe anchor but now if I feel like I can experience my feet as they stand on the floor and I can experience the breath as it goes in and out of my body that becomes my safety and I can then confront and destabilize that I'm a a terrible person and I can actually question it to a point where it just kind of falls apart its logic doesn't make sense anymore and access the the divine light within me which is just part of the infinite oneness and I'm just an expression of that in this world and that whatever comes my way is an opportunity for me to grow is an opportunity for me to to confront something and transform it through my interaction with it like you did you with know, amazingly with this guy who came at you with a with a knife and really just shifted the whole energy which is quite unbelievable and this is what we believe as Jews is our purpose of being in this world is confronting the darkness and transforming it which is like exactly that just oh what are you doing here and I wonder what this is and uh, let's work with it there are definitely things that we believe are better off not interacting with if you don't have to but like for example to not steal things but if you are confronted with stolen goods, what do you do with it? That's another question. And we do have to confront it then. You have an opportunity to draw light into that negativity. You have an opportunity to, to turn it around, confronting it and reconnecting it back to its source. To call the process to shiva, To shiva literally means to return. To return something back to the source of what it always was in its wholeness and its goodness, the source of what it is. Mm and um, it's just a fragmented part a part that's been taken out of context through fear or anything and just bringing it back in to the oneness of, of all thank you so much chris for your time and for this conversation i'm sure it's going to be very interesting and helpful for a lot of people to listen to
0: thank you for inviting me yeah it's been an honor and i, I really hope that some of the ideas that i've shared might be useful
1: Yeah, I hope so, too. Thank you so much. Really grateful.